Man Journey, are you in for a treat today? We're going to be blessed by a guy named Eric Pfeiffer, who, if uh, lots of you know that over the last year or so, we've engaged in a transition in the life of our church where we're beginning a transition to actually set our church on the fully mobilized on the mission of Jesus Christ. And we didn't exactly know what that would look like or what that would take, and we thought we needed some help with that. So our good friend Bob Schwann sort of scoured the country, located an organization called 3DM. If you remember this past spring, we walked through the Covenant and Kingdom series. They're the authors of the Covenant and Kingdom series, uh, and they're led by a fantastic group of guys. And Eric Pfeiffer is one of their key leaders. And we said, hey, Eric, would you come and would you sort of cast vision for what it could look like for us to be a church mobilized on the mission of Christ, what it looks like for us one by one by one to be mobilized on the mission of Christ. And so Eric and his wife Candy and his whole family uh, came up for the weekend and he's gonna paint a picture for us, a fantastic picture. They hail from South Carolina and just a, a little secret I'm gonna let you in on, they're falling in love with Montana, which is easy to do, just wait till January. We'll see how easy it is then. But would you please give a very warm Journey Church welcome to our friend Eric. Apparently, Dana is already helping my wife to look for homes that we might, you know, stay here for the few months during the warmer times of your year, which currently it's hot and sweaty in South Carolina. It's like swamp, you know, Ville down there. So it's great to be here. It's been a privilege. We've had the opportunity to come as a family. My wife, who's here in the front row, and um, you can come meet her afterward if you'd like and ask if everything I'm saying is actually true or not. And um, my two children, uh, 10 and 8, girl, boy, Charity and Justice, who are now in your child care, I guess. And I'm sure they're loving that. We came out a few nights ago. We made a trip down to Yellowstone National Park. It was awesome. We were promised the incredible sights and vistas and wildlife uh, and I think we saw more wildlife on the way to the park than we saw in the park. The animals were not complying with our particular expectations, but we did see one large deer. And the only reason is because at 50 miles an hour, while my kids are in the back saying, are we almost home yet? There's a car stopped dead in front of us, and they had located a deer. Now, I got to be honest, I felt bad. Brian's like, what would you see? What did you see? I said, we saw a big deer, and I haven't had the heart to tell him that we have plenty of deer in South Carolina. So, uh, but we did see Old Faithful. Now, how many of you have been tricked as you were driving into the park, headed down toward the springs, the hot springs? How many of you were tricked like us to stop at the very first hot springs available? Anybody ever fallen into that trick? Yeah, God bless you. I know your pain. We walked around for about an hour along these little walkways with bubbling sulfur on either side. It smells like rotten eggs, but we're on the adventure. We're committed to seeing what everybody says is this beautiful geyser. So we trek around this, it felt like 10-mile journey along these little sidewalks, terrified to fall on either side. I've got my 8-year-old son who thinks he's tightrope walking the edge, certain that if he falls in, he's going to melt to death, and that's the end of him, only to get around the entire circle to get back to our car and realize, I never saw a sign that said Old Faithful. I don't think we saw it. 
Old Faithful is actually miles down the road. I didn't know there was a whole valley of hot springs. I thought it was like Disneyland. You go, there's a simple attraction, you pay your money, you wait in line, you see the good thing, and you're done. It's not like that. It takes like probably years to see the whole of ne- uh, the Yellowstone Park. We had a great time. We, we hiked up to the M yesterday morning. Huh? Yeah? My lungs were burning. I live at sea level. You live at like a billion feet in the air. And I was dying. Brian and I are talking at one point. I'm like, I hope he doesn't ask me another question because I I cannot. No, I didn't feel that way. I cannot breathe. Uh, We went to your farmer's market, had fun, and we've just fallen in love with you Montanians. We love your heart. We love your spirit. We love your pastor and his family. We've had the privilege of being in their home and dining with them and sharing life stories. And um, if this community, which I believe it is, if you guys are anything like your leaders, then uh, I want to get to know you guys just as much as I've gotten to know your uh, pastoral folks here. Now that we're family, I can let you in on a little secret. It's actually a personal confession. I'm a grown man, and I'm scared of bees. Amen. Anybody else want to come clean with that confession? Come on, guys. <laughs> I'm scared of these things. I don't know why. It's not like I'm allergic. It's not like I've ever been bombarded or swarmed by bees. But growing up, I'm terrified. I'm convinced somehow in my mind that any flying insect that has a stinger on it is out to get me, right? That's just, that's my mindset, okay? And so years ago, I'm traveling down the road at about 70 miles an hour. I'm traveling along a very open road in Phoenix, Arizona. It's 118 degrees, which is why we don't live there anymore. And as I'm traveling down the road, I've got the music blaring. I'm probably listening to something like what we heard this morning from the worship team, which are awesome, by the way. And as I'm flying down the road, I hear this behind the music, you know the sound of one of these little villains when they're butting up against a window? Well, I knew at 70 miles an hour he wasn't trying to get in. He was trying to get out. (laughs) There wasn't even a thought that ran through my brain. I immediately went into panic mode. I jerked the steering wheel. I haul over to the side of the road. I fly out of the car. I'm still to this day not sure how it managed to get itself into park and stop rolling. I jump out of the car. I'm throwing my clothes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I didn't strip all the way down, but I mean, I might have in that moment because my greatest fear is that one of these little boogers is hiding right behind my neck in my collar of my shirt. I don't know why. It's a terrible dream that I have every time that, you know, I'm going through hard stuff. Anyways, I'm, it takes me about five minutes. I finally collect myself. I'm sitting down on the curb on this very kind of open highway, and I realize I'm a grown man. And I remember the words of my mother growing up, honey, just remember they're more afraid of you than you should be of them. It just doesn't work that way in my mind, okay? And so I finally get up the courage to go and to look through the tinted back windows of my 99 Ford Windstar minivan because that's how I rolled back then. And I'm looking inside hoping to locate the the, uh, the assassin is what I'm convinced they are, and to make sure that he's got out so that I can get back in. And as I look through the tinted windows, I see my two small children staring back at me. <laughs> Smiles in their face, probably wondering where dad has gone. Okay, this isn't one of my most heroic moments in life, but I thought I would share that with you because the question we're wrestling with this morning is simply this, how do we respond when we find ourselves in crisis? And obviously your crisis may not be getting stung by a bee, but I want to contrast that story with a story of a real hero. Years ago on May 8th of 2008 at 2.28 p.m. China Standard Time, 
an 8.0 earthquake rocks central China. It was so powerful and so unexpected, it brought most of the buildings that had stood for many and many years crumbling down as if they were made of Play-Doh. People were out of home. People were lost. People's families were divided. The the landscape changed so quickly in a split second that people didn't even know where they were, didn't recognize the streets, didn't recognize the landmarks that forever had marked their reference points around their own home community. They ended up having to erect refugee camps all across this region just so that people could get some soup just so that people might have somewhere to sleep in the heaviness of the weather and the rains in this place. But there's one story that stands out amongst them all, a story that some of you may be familiar with. In the aftermath of the earthquake, there was an elementary school, as many of them did, that had crumbled down and it was in sheer ruin. There was a nine-year-old boy that came to, realizing what had happened, began to find his way through the rubble and eventually discovered an escape route, got outside of the school, looked around, didn't see any of his classmates, and decides that he's going back in. He makes his way back into the rubble, locates his class, and begins one by one to evacuate them, leading them through the pathway that he himself had discovered along those journeys, incurring more and more injury to his head and to his body scars that he will carry for the rest of his life The students were so scared, he encouraged them to begin singing songs so that they would have hope in their hearts. Weeks, maybe months later, he was interviewed as a nine-year-old boy and asked, Lin Howe, why did you go back in? This was his response. I'm the hall monitor. It's my job. I'm the hall monitor. It's my job. And see, the reason we're here this morning, gathered together, is because we believe in a God who has created us and given us an identity. We're called Christians. And guess what? Saving the world is our job. The legacy of Christians over many generations is incredible. We're responsible for the first hospitals. Did you know that? We're responsible for the first universities. We're responsible for social services that have developed across every continent, taking care of the least and the last and the lost of every community and context. We're responsible for the Red Cross. We're responsible for orphanages. Why? Because we're Christians and saving the world is our job. Here's the question. These are legacies from past generations, but we're the Christians of this generation. And when our great, great, great grandchildren look back upon this generation, when it was our time on the clock, when it was our turn on the job, what will be the legacy that they remember about us? Let's pray together and see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you that you have created us and called us 
not just to find refuge in the refugee camp in the midst of the fallenness and brokenness of the world that we live in, but to join you in the rescue efforts to rise up with courage and boldness like Lin Howe and the many others who not only escaped from the rubble and the ruin of this disaster, but who had the courage to remember who they were. And so God, this morning afresh, remind us who we are in you, that we're Christians and that saving the world is our job. Amen? Amen. So I want to read from a little letter that was written by one of the Christian leaders just on the back end of Jesus' ascension. You know, right? Jesus came to the earth. He was here for quite a while. He did some awesome things, died on the cross. He went out to be at the right hand of the Father. And he left a bunch of people like you and me in charge. And so these leaders like Brian or myself or anybody else who you've been led by, Right, these leaders were now responsible for this growing movement called Christianity. These people who in the midst of their lives had discovered, had encountered, and had been won over by the amazing love of God in this person named Jesus Christ. And they committed their life to Jesus. They've given themselves over. And they were excited about living like Jesus. And yet... Much like us in our current day, they were experiencing all kinds of incredible pressures. They were, as it were, living life between a rock and a hard place. And so the leaders, the person who writes this letter, is writing a personal letter to these Jewish Christians that are scattered around the Middle Eastern and Mediterranean regions who were scattered because of seasons of persecution, who were scattered not only because of their beliefs, but because of the way that they wanted to live. You see, they were in between a rock on one side, the Roman government, and the Roman government didn't like these Christians. Why? Because these Christians worshipped not King Caesar, but this person named King Jesus. And so the Roman government was understandably a bit concerned that as this growing movement of Christians scattered across the Roman Empire, that they might cause an uprising and undermine the current governmental leadership. Now, on the other hand, you had these Hebrew Christians who came from families of other Jews, many of whom did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe he was the Messiah. They rejected him. They scorned him. They said, no way can we believe that this man who has come is the chosen one. Why? Because they had all of their own preconceptions and expectations of who this Messiah would be. And so they said, no way. And so here you have these Jewish Christians between a rock, the Roman government on one side, and a hard place, their families on the other, being pushed out by the Roman government, not wanting to give them care or help in the midst of their crisis, not wanting to provide refuge for them, and pushed out by their families on the other side, rejected, scorned, ostracized, and disenfranchised. And so in the midst of this incredible, incredible tension, these early Christians were tempted, much like we are even in our current day, to default to a position of self-preservation. What happens to us when we're in crisis? What happens to us when we're under incredible pressure? 
do we yank the car over to the side and jump out screaming, save me, save me? Or do we like Jesus and the way that Jesus trained his followers? Do we know how to step up and move beyond the refugee camp to the rescue team? To reach back into the brokenness of the world around us and to help other people who are lost and hopeless find the God of love and hope. And so... That's our question today. For some of us, we need a refugee camp. And if you are here seeking healing and wholeness, if you feel lost and alone, and you're just trying to make sense of the world around you, then we welcome you here this morning and we say, come and we pray that the peace and the love and the hope of God fills your heart today. For some of us, we've been here, we've been gathering here Sunday after Sunday, year after year thanking God for all that he's done for us. And this morning, God wants to remind us afresh that he created us for more than just the refugee camp, but he created each one of us, you and I, no matter your age, your creed, your color, no matter your background, no matter your education, to join his rescue team. Because there is a world around us, even here in Bozeman, Montana, that is broken, that is hurting, that is lost and lonely and that needs us, like Lin Howe, to turn around and reach back in. So let's read from this letter uh, called the letter to the Hebrews. I'm going to read in chapter 12, verse 26. It says, at that time, he's reminding these, these Christians under pressure, at that time his voice, God's voice, shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What the author here is saying, what he's writing this letter for is to remind these beautiful Christians to remember that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how many of the challenges they face, no matter what the pressure they experience, the God that they've put their hope in is greater than the challenges of their life. He reminds them of the legacy of their family. The same God that spoke from Mount Sinai. That's the reference he's saying, that voice that shook the earth. The same voice of God that spoke from Mount Sinai in the Old Testament to the Israelites as they were crossing through the wilderness into the promised land is the same God who has spoken to you through his son, Jesus. Reminding you that though the world around you shakes and crumbles and falls, God is unshakable, his love, his peace, his joy, it's unshakable. And so he says, don't default to self-preservation. Don't default to the position of just hunkering down, right? Because sometimes that's the temptation. We've got our ticket to heaven, Let's just hunker down. Let's get down in the basement. Let's lock the doors. Let's make sure the the, the ugly world around us doesn't get to us. Let's protect our children. Let's protect our family. Let's make sure we're safe and secure. Let's wait for the Jesus train to come back, to pick us up, to take us to heaven where we'll enjoy eternity with him. And until then, we just hold on for dear life. You see, that's not the posture of the rescue team. 
Instead, the author says to these Christians, as I believe God is wanting to say to us today, no, no. Because you walk with a powerful God who is more powerful than the brokenness out there, we get to join him and enter back in. And so he continues on in chapter 13 to remind them of what it means to be a part of the rescue team. He says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. Just real quick, if I ever show up at your door and you don't remember me, just remember this scripture, right? You entertain strangers because by so doing, you might have just helped an angel. And I'm convinced that's why the Hopkins family has been so generous to us because they're not sure if we're an angel or not, okay? And so they're just trying to be on the right side of that, that equation. He says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? These are real powerful words for people in that situation, and I think for some of us here this morning. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, who in other words shared the story of what it means to be a part of this growing family. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe the legacy that God has created and called each one of us for is to join him in this rescue effort, to become a part of this rescue team and to live a life of learning to reach out and to reach into the rubble. And so there's four characteristics of being in this rescue team that I think every one of us needs to just reflect on this morning. So I'm not preaching at you this morning. I'm preaching with you. This is the life that I'm committed to living with my wife and our kids. We read over these scriptures and we always ask ourselves, God, what are you trying to say to us? So this morning, that's the question I want you to be thinking about as I'm talking. God, what are you wanting to say to me this morning? What are you wanting to say to, to, to my spouse and I? What do you want to say to our family? And of course, what, are, what is God saying to this church? The four characteristics of a rescue team are simply this, compassion. The rescue team of God is overflowing and oozing the compassion of Christ. The rescue team always functions in community. It's not an independent individual affair, but a family affair. The third characteristic is that of a connecting story. In other words, we need a story that's bigger than our story, a story that's so big that it can encompass the story of the thousands and millions around this world who need a new story. And the fourth characteristic is a compass because the rescue team never leaves home without their compass. So let's, let's wrestle with each one of these, talk a little bit about them, and see the heart of God revealed and see what God has to say to us. The first characteristic, that of compassion, you'll see there in chapter 13 of Hebrews where I just read in this letter, he says, don't forget to love each other. And why do we forget to love each other? Because we're loving ourselves instead. Because in the midst of crisis and under pressure, the temptation is to make sure that I take care of me, myself, and I. And the author here is saying, don't forget to love each other. Don't forget to visit those of your brothers and sisters who've been in prison because they're struggling and suffering under the brokenness of the world around them. Don't forget to treat those who have been mistreated the way that you would want to be treated if you were mistreated. Don't, don't forget that the heart of God is about others 
And the amazing thing is, Christians, as we reach out to others, it makes room for God to reach into our life. It's a powerful story in the first gospel of Mark. It's in your notes. Jesus is walking along the road with his entourage, and he's just kind of minding his own business, going along his ways, doing some preaching here, doing some ministry here, healing these people, doing that kind of, you know, normal Jesus Christian stuff. And as he's walking down the road, there's a, a man who confronts him, which was shocking that the man even got as close to Jesus as he could because the man was a leper. And in that day, a leper was considered unclean, right? You were contaminated according to the religious culture. And so nobody wanted to get near you. And so the rule was if you were considered unclean, you were required in public to cover yourself with sackcloth and ash. That's not nice. And you had to walk around pulling the hair from your head, screaming, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, so that everybody else would know not to get anywhere near you lest they become themselves contaminated and unclean. And in that culture, if you became unclean, it was like a week-long plus cleansing ceremony just so that you could go back into public. Now, we may not find lepers in our own local communities, but I'm sure we do encounter people that we might consider unclean. People with whom we don't want to associate for fear that they will contaminate us in some way or maybe our children. And so Jesus in this moment sees this man and where everybody else takes a step back, Jesus leans in. And the man says to Jesus, if you're willing, you could make me clean. And in this moment, Jesus reaches out his hand. He touches the leper. He could have just, other times he just says, be, eyes be opened. And the guy who's blind sees. But in this moment, Jesus wanted everyone around him to see the heart of the Father. Because that's what Jesus does on the earth. He's just here to reveal the heart of the Father. And so he reaches out, he touches the man, and he says, I am willing be clean, and the leprosy immediately leaves him. Because in that culture, what they understood through their religious establishment was that the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. Did you get that? Nod your head, yes. Good, this is interactive teaching, okay? But Jesus came revealing the kingdom of his father, the, the thing that was on his father's heart. And what's on his father's heart? That when the kingdom of his father comes, the clean thing makes the unclean thing clean. And we need to remember that the very spirit of the living God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, now lives inside of you and me. And we've been made clean by the washing of God's word that he has spoken over us. And so we together get to engage in the brokenness and the contamination and the disease and the filth of the world around us. Maybe in our own families, maybe in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, in our communities. We get to engage with them, not fearing they will contaminate us, but knowing that the power of God living in us is greater than the power of the enemy living in the world. And we get to be a part of the rescue mission to clean this world up. That's awesome. That's for you and me. We're Christians. Saving the world is our job. The second characteristic of the rescue team is community. We live in a kind of autonomous, independent, kind of pick up yourselves by your bootstraps, get things done on your own strength kind of culture, right? 
We're in a rugged, independent, individualistic kind of people, not just here in Montana, but all across the great country of the United States. It wasn't supposed to be that way, and it's not supposed to be that way. God created us to live in community. Jesus never sent any of his, his, his rescue team out as individual units. He always sent them out in the smallest unit of two by two. And see, what happens is oftentimes when we come into the refugee camp, we become so concerned about making sure that I've got my space and my family's taken care of and that, you know, we're safe and we're secure that we begin to create dividing boundaries and lines and barriers between ourselves and other people that are supposed to be on the rescue team. And we can become so, so caught up in what's happening in the refugee camp that we forget there are still people out there in the rubble. That actually happens. They have found that after massive disasters, what happens is initially the people are so thankful for the refugee camp, but over time they get comfortable. They start making their own little homes in there because they start to believe that this is it. This is, this is the end of it. This, this, is, this is what we're living for. And so they, begin, they become protective and self-indulgent. And the things that were given to them generously, that were given to them freely, now they hold. Or I should say withhold. And so there's a story in Mark 3, again, that's in your notes, where Jesus is hanging out with some of his friends and his followers in somebody's home. And somebody looks through the window and says, hey, Jesus, I see your mom and your brothers outside. I think they're coming to get you. Now, you've got to understand the backstory to this, okay, real quick. Jesus goes to the Jordan River. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. You know that story? Some of you could. The voice from the father comes down, you're my son. He's like, awesome, dad. Let's go on mission together, son. Let's be the rescue team. Awesome, dad. So Jesus embarks on that journey. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth first, goes into church on a Sunday morning, Saturday morning to the synagogue, and they say, hey, do you want to read the Bible reading today? He says, yes, it's the Old Testament. So Jesus picks up the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he reads and it happens to be a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He lays down the scroll and he says, guys, you know what? This is crazy. Little coincidence, you know. But that's me. Hey, cat's out of the bag. <laughs> well, back then, that, that, that's, that's the same as if one of you just stood up and run up here, grabbed the microphone and said, hey, you know what? Just so you guys know, I am Jesus, the second coming. Everyone would be like, rope him, you know. <laughs> crazy guy. Well, that's what it was like. And his own blood family and the rest of that village ran him out to the edge of a cliff, tried to throw him off and stone him to death. Because his blood family were so convinced that there was a certain way that there was to be a part of their family. They were so self-protecting. They were terrified because they were convinced that Jesus had a messianic complex. You'll get that later when you're driving home as a joke. Messianic complex, messiah. Anyways, <clears throat> it's all right. It's only 11 o'clock in the morning. Some of you are still waking up. So they're concerned about him. Now, in the same story, Mark mixes in that the religious leaders, right, the Christian leaders of the day back then were really upset with Jesus because he wasn't, he wasn't acting according to the way that they wanted him to. He, you know, he didn't dress the way they wanted to. He didn't, like, you know, talk the way he wanted to. He probably hung out with some people he, you know, they didn't think was, he was supposed to hang out with. So, so he had two people or two groups on either side of him breathing down his neck, frustrated that he wasn't fitting into their little world of expectation. His blood family who said, if you want to be a part of our family, there's limitations to what you can do. And the religious family that was saying, if you ever want to be a part of our family, then there are some things that you need need to do. And so they were so worried about who was in or who was out, and Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father, and he reveals to us that God the Father is the one who gets to define his own family. 
not his children. I've been so blessed being with the Hopkins over these last few days, mingling with their family, some of which don't look like them, if you've noticed. Because they've learned that family isn't about who's in or out, but it's who wants, like Jesus says to these people, who wants to be about something bigger than themselves. And so when they say, Jesus, your family's here, he says, who is my family? Let's talk about this because I don't even define my family. The father does. And so he says, you are my mothers and my brothers and sisters. Why? Because you're more interested in what's on the father's heart than your own selfish ambition. And in crisis, our temptation often is toward selfish ambition. The third characteristic of the rescue team is the connecting story. This is a really big deal. The reason is because for many of us, we know a little bit about the history of our own families, right? We've gone on like, you know, familytree.com and it's really big right now, that whole idea. And we found out our history. We know where our, our, our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents come from. We're proud if we've got some Italian blood and some, you know, German blood and some Irish. And, you know, we're, we just, we love that. We love to know our lineage and our, our heritage. But for these Jews, it was so easy for them to forget and I think even for us as Christians, it can be very easy to forget that our story is not just about us and our family. Our story is actually a part of a much bigger story that God has invited us into. Our story is actually God's story, the story of a God who has a heart of love, who is seeking to redeem the entire world, who is not so preoccupied with you or me that he has forgotten about the brokenness of the world around us. And so there's this story in Luke 19 where Jesus is again cruising down with his friends. He did everything together in community. And he sees this wee little man who's climbed up in a tree just trying to get a look at Jesus. You guys remember his name? Zacchaeus. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I want to have dinner with you. Now, mind you, that's almost as crazy as him touching the leper. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which means the Jews hate him because he didn't just collect the Roman, collect the Roman tax. He always took a little bit extra for his own pockets. The Romans didn't like him because he was a Jew and he wasn't one of them. And so Zacchaeus, being a man who wasn't liked by really anybody, found his own little enclave of friends, a group of people who were all kind of misfits and pretenders and crazies. And so here in this moment, Jesus reaches out with compassion and invites Zacchaeus to eat a meal with him, which was synonymous with inviting him to the table of friendship and family. They go have a meal together. There's all these, you know, drunkards and, and prostitutes and all of Zacchaeus' friends sitting around the table. And the religious leaders are on the outside, of course, looking in, not sure why Jesus isn't kind of trying to do what they're doing. And they're disgusted by Jesus' actions, not knowing and understanding what's going on. And there in this moment, Zacchaeus, overwhelmed by this man who would enter into his world and accept him for who he is, stands up and says, you know what? I don't know what's happening, but something's bubbling up inside of me. I'm giving half of everything I own away, and anybody that I've ever cheated, I'm going to give it back to them multiple times over. His friends are looking at him going, you're crazy, man. You're going to be broke. But see, in that moment, Zacchaeus was encountering the love of a God that was much richer than the money that he had in his pocketbook. And he was so overwhelmed that all he wanted to do was give away what he had received. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's God who invites us into his family. 
and into his life, not we who invite him into ours. And so it's important for us to remember that as we engage with the world around us, these are people who are broken and lonely and they don't like their story because it's full of junk. And are we the kind of people who have a story to share with them and to invite them into that's big enough and broad enough to gather up all the broken pieces of their lives and to begin to help them make sense of who they are and why they're here on this earth. To have a chance to come and be in the refugee camp, but to eventually join you in the rescue mission. The fourth and final characteristic I want to talk about is that of a compass. You see, some of you are inspired. Some of you are just totally overwhelmed right now going, what in the world am I going to do about this? But here's the good news. The author here in that letter of Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason he wants them to hear this is because he wants them to remember that Though our, our job as Christians is to save the world, the only way we're able to save the world is if we remember who the captain of our rescue team is. It's Jesus. And you know the awesome thing about Jesus is that he invites us to come along with him and to join him in the rescue mission. His promise is that he will, like Brian prayed earlier, supply every need we may have along the journey. We'll be tempted, some of us, to start strategizing different ways we can reach out into the world. We're going to be tempted to muster up all of our resources, to collect our, you know, our gathered skills and our talents together, and we're going to go make a dent for the kingdom of God. And here's the good news. We're free from that. Instead, the first step in joining the rescue team is acknowledging that Jesus is the captain and that our job is not to go out and make a name for ourselves, but to let Jesus set the course, and for us to learn how to get on board. Because guess what? Long before you were even alive, Jesus was reaching out to Bozeman. Long before you ever started thinking about it, Jesus has been reaching into your neighborhood or your workplace or into your family. And his invitation is not for us to go and do it, but to join him to learn how to walk step in step with him as a community of people, as families, and learn together with him what it means, like Lin Howe, to be the saviors of the world. Months after that disastrous earthquake in May of 2008, China hosted the Beijing Olympics. It's a powerful testimony of the strength of a nation. And um, at the opening ceremonies, um, <clears throat> the Chinese team came in, and of course, this, the stands are filled and with, with Chinese uh, folks, and they're celebrating and screaming and shouting a testimony of their nation's um, perseverance and courage. Here comes the Chinese Olympic team coming in. The stands rise to their feet. They're screaming, they're shouting, they're hollering. Tears are coming from everybody's eyes as they look at their team, the, the people that represent their team. And as the Chinese Olympic team comes in, they're led by Yao Ming, seven foot six, 
uh, ex-NBA basketball player, and next to him leading their team is pint-sized Lin Howe. Also a figure of heroism and courage in their nation. And you see, there's going to come a day where every single one of us will enter into the presence of God for eternity. And angels will fill the stadium seats, cheering and celebrating and hooting and hollering the journey that we've had upon this earth. Celebrating our homecoming, if you will. And my prayer is that every single one of us will be able to walk into that stage as a part of God's rescue team. And that when we are asked in that moment, why did you do it? Our simple response will be, I'm a Christian. It's my job. I'm going to invite the worship team to come out. I'm going to pray for us. And I just want to give us a moment, like I said earlier, not to hear what I'm saying this morning, but more importantly, to hear what our Father, who is the King, might be wanting to speak to each one of us. And so, God, we just invite you as you're stirring in our hearts. I know many of us are already thinking about where we're headed for lunch this afternoon, which is awesome. <clears throat> but we ask, God, that in this moment you would just help us to just to have a sense of what it is that you're prodding us toward. Lord, for those of us who just need a refugee camp right now, God, thank you that this is that place, that Journey Church is that community that can provide healing and wholeness and restoration. But Lord, for those of us who find that we've experienced lots of healing, we've experienced lots of restoration, we've been bandaged up, Lord, may we begin to step forward into the journey of being a part of your rescue team. God, thank you for Brian and the, the leadership team here who is committed to moving beyond the refugee camp into the rescue team. Thank you, God, for their heart, for this city, for this state, for this country. And we ask simply in your name, Jesus, that you would give us the courage not only to hear what you're saying to us this morning, but to respond to you.